Hey, I love therapy, and in fact, I've been going to therapy since I was around six years old. Though I talk about therapy a lot and may interview some therapists on the show on occasion, nothing that is said in this podcast should be considered a replacement for therapy. If you are struggling, I urge you to please seek guidance from a therapist because you are absolutely worth it. Hello everyone, you are listening to Wine, Dine, and 69, a podcast about dating, relationships, sex, and self-love. I am your host, Rachel Dalton, and first thing is first, a very happy birthday to my partner. I love you very much. Uh, I am recording this intro from not my childhood bedroom, but my younger brother's childhood bedroom. I have a very special guest here with me today. Uh, Her name is Clover Dalton. She is my dog, and um, she probably is not going to have much to say because she's passed out at the foot of the bed, but it's okay. She's here for emotional support. So yeah, I came back because my youngest brother um, graduated from college, Uh, so it was good to spend a lot of time, you know, with family and just kind of laying low. Um, It's been kind of a hectic month April was, so it was kind of nice to just uh, spend time with my family and eat good food and um, yeah, laugh a lot. It was good. And I head back to Philly tomorrow. Uh, So getting this done well, I have time because I'm jumping right back into a hectic schedule once I land. Um, But it is kind of appropriate that I'm recording this at home, uh, not just because of the topic for today's interview, but because of what I wanted to talk about in our intro this week too. Every so often, an article will come into my life that has a very profound impact on me. Um, It happened with the article, Cat Person, a few years ago, uh, with uh, Elaine de Baton's piece in the New York Times, Why You'll Marry the Wrong Person. Um, And it kind of happened with this one, too. I've actually read it a handful of times since I discovered it. Uh, The article was in The New Yorker, and it is titled, Are You the Same Person You Used to Be? It's by Joshua Rothman. It was originally published in um, the October issue of The New Yorker. And wow, I mean, where to start with this? I guess we're going to start with a direct quote from the article. All right, here we go. If we could see our childish selves more clearly, we might have a better sense of the course and character of our lives. Are we the same people at four that we will be at 24, 44, or 74? Or will we change substantially through time? Is the fix already in, or will our stories have surprising twists and turns? I've been doing a lot of thought about, I've been doing a lot of thought, I've been doing a lot of thinking about development of self and how that works. I am a very nostalgic and inquisitive person, if you couldn't tell. And I've been trying to figure out like why that was, what it, where it comes from. I know that part of it is genetics, you know, that is, it's very much like my mother and frankly, like both of my parents to think a lot about myself and the world around me and how I interact with the world and the people in it. And I, I understand that. Um, but I've been trying to figure out, I'm like, why do I look back so much? 
And I know that part of it is because I want to try to understand my past so that I don't make the same mistakes in the future. But after reading this article, I think I realized that there is just a very big part of me that feels connected to my past in a way that maybe other people don't. Um, I feel like I am the same person that I was when I was younger, which apparently some people don't feel. And uh, I'll read another quote to kind of tie into that. Do you seem to be remembering yesterday or reading a novel about a fictional character? If you have the former feelings, you're probably a continuer. If the latter, you're probably a divider. Dividers tell the story of how they've renovated their houses, becoming the architects along the way. Continuers tell the story of an August property that will remain itself regardless of what gets built. As different as these two views sound, they have a lot in common. Among other things, they aid us in our self-development. And yeah, I definitely um, fall more into the continuer category. I, I know that there are chapters of my life that I can see like the very clear lines of when things shifted or when things changed, but it's because of like some external event that has forced that change, right? Like, and I don't regret any of it. Like every change that has happened externally that has been forced upon me with maybe the exception of, you know, my mother's cancer diagnosis, which is just unfair on all levels. But, you know, all these other things have been really good for challenging me and forcing me to grow and to level up in all the areas um, in which I was beginning to outgrow. Uh, all of that to be said, though, there are people out there who are more dividers. And I realize now that, you know, people who used to be in my life who aren't anymore, we just fundamentally saw the world in different ways. I have a tendency to see myself and my life with a very clear line back to who I used to be, whereas other people, you know, feel a lot of distance between who they are now and who they were. I always had a hard time understanding that, how people could feel so far removed from the person that they used to be because I feel so close to the person that I used to be. And, you know, we kind of talked that in, about that in the episode today about, you know, being in touch with your inner child, being able to talk to your inner child. Maybe the people who, you know, are more attracted to that type of work are more continuers rather than dividers. I always thought that part of the reason why I had a hard time when people left my life, whether it be a family member or a relationship or a friendship, was because I, I mean I've started to realize that part of it is because I'm demisexual and you know once I feel a really strong bond with somebody it's difficult when that ends or gets pulled away but I think it also just has to do with the fact that I'm a continuer and you know I'm not opposed to change but I like change to happen on my terms I think we all do but that's not really how life works um, of course <laughs> Uh, but anyway, this article also uh, goes into detail about a number of studies. One of them uh, was the Dune Din Project. Um, I hope I said that right. And it discusses the different ways that adolescents interact with the world. There are some that move with the world, 
There are some that move away from the world, and there are some that move against the world. And it's a really fascinating concept. I find that I want to do a lot more research on um, this particular study because, I mean, just childhood and how we evolve from childhood and the things that we repress from childhood, the things that we take with us, the patterns, it's all fascinating to me. So I definitely will be doing a deeper dive into this uh, project in the future. I'm going to make a note of it. Uh, But another thing that they covered in this was a series of documentaries that have been made since the 60s called the 7-Up Documentaries, checking in with a group of children every seven years or so and tracking how they change over the course of a life. Um, So I will also be checking those out for research, obviously. And yeah, it's, it's this interesting idea, and maybe it's the fact that I'm a daughter of a writer, but... It just seems to be that some people live their life in a narrative mode, which I definitely do, and which I think a lot of the people who I'm close to, many of whom are writers, also view the world that way. Well, others do not see their life in that way. It's it's more of a series of events that those connections or those threads just aren't connecting. Um and I like the way I am. I think that the way I am is the more difficult road because it's a lot of introspection, a lot of being hard on yourself, and a lot of asking yourself what if and what could I have done different and how would things have been different. It just a lot of lot of questions. It's uh, quite frankly exhausting. But I like the way I am, and I think that there are pros and cons to both both ways being a divider or being a continuer but i think the most important thing that i've taken away from this article is understanding that there are different types of people and that there isn't a wrong or a right way but that if there's a disconnect between you and another person and the way that you view life your life philosophies it could have to do with the fact that you just see a life timeline differently um, and so that's that's my big takeaway. And I guess I'll kind of close with another another quote directly from the article. Of, I, of course, will post it in the episode notes. But here it is. Living alongside our friends, spouses, parents, and children, we wonder if they're the same people we've always known or if they've lived through changes we or they struggle to see. Even as we work tirelessly to improve... We find that wherever we go, there we are. In which case, what's the point? And yet sometimes we recall our former selves with a sense of wonder, as if remembering a past life. Lives are long and hard to see. What can we learn by asking if we've always been who we are? Um, So I don't know about you, but I'm going to be thinking about this a lot, and I'll probably bring it up in a future episode, maybe in a a few weeks. but yeah, check that out and let me know your thoughts because I am fascinated with the idea that different people see themselves or experience the world in, in different ways. And of course, I, I know that abstractly, right? But really having it laid out for me in that way with specific examples, um, really, it's been absolutely enlightening. Um, 
All right. Well, I have talked. This is the longest intro I've had in a while, it feels like. Um, but, or at least on one topic. Anyway, uh, this is a great intro for the conversation that I'm going to have with my guest today. My guest is Thomas Gagliano, and uh, we are going to talk about childhood. We are going to talk about healing from childhood. We are going to talk about how to be a good parent to your children so that maybe they will escape childhood unscathed. Uh, yeah, so just diving into, it can be a pretty deep topic, so be aware of that um, going in, but it is chock full of, I mean, Tom has some great stories and great examples of um, really solid parenting uh, with him and his children. So uh, like I say in the episode, I'm always impressed by someone who is really, really dedicated to doing the work to make a change and break patterns. So um, with that, I'm going to cut to a quick commercial break. Yes, nailed it. Didn't stumble over my words that time. And then please enjoy my conversation with Thomas Gagliano. Broken, a tragic romance game by Apon Games, is a storytelling game of tragic romance for two players about broken objects and broken hearts. Together, you and your play partner will create two characters in a relationship, and over the course of ten scenes, you will explore the ways in which the things you loved about each other crack, until everything about your relationship is broken, including ten real-life physical objects you will break over the game's ten scenes. In Broken, the relationship will always end. Although the tragic conclusion is inevitable, there is endless potential for healing and self-discovery along the way. Broken is an emotionally deep game that explores themes of memory, identity, and loss. Broken is also full of empathy building, hope, and healing. It recreates the raw, visceral experience of going through a breakup, along with the catharsis of smashing objects, all while telling a beautiful story along the way. Get your copy of the Broken ebook edition now by going to bit.ly slash broken game. That's bit.ly slash broken game or head to apongames.com. A P O N games.com today. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. I am very excited to talk to my guest today. This is a topic that is near and dear to my heart, uh, but let's get him introduced first. Welcome to Thomas Gagliano. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you. I mean, what we're going to talk about today um, is essentially childhood and the different messages that you as a child can take on and kind of how parents can be better parents and how as we grow older, we can release some of that messaging. But with that, I mean, I kind of find that it's a good jumping off point to have you go ahead and tell the listeners a little bit about you, your story, and how you came to be involved in this work. Well, thank you. Um, well, how I became involved in this work was from coming from a, a tough childhood uh, my childhood was not a healthy one. I had a dad that was an alcoholic and if he didn't come home at a certain time, it meant he was going to hurt someone. And I oh had boy. a mom that was suicidal. So, uh, I'm not going to go into all my horror stories, but basically I think you got the picture. 
And uh, um, I sabotaged a lot of my life. I sabotaged my relationship with uh, intimacy with others uh, until I finally got help and worked on what was broken inside of me. And then about 20 years ago, I decided I was going to move away from the world of business, which I was successful at. And I had two goals. One was to give my children the positive and loving messages that were denied to me in my childhood. Mm -hmm. And the other one was to help other people that came from just such such, uh, atrocious childhoods that they were sabotaging all the happiness in their life and hurting others, but they didn't know why or how. So I started to facilitate groups in my house for couples, individuals, um, parenting, and try to help them build back uh, their relationships, but first understand why they were sabotaging it. Why in childhood were those messages so powerful that they just kept throwing a monkey wrench into all of their relationships? Mm-hmm. And that's what got me going on this. Um, and I, I want to relate a little bit, one quick story with my of son. Course. And it was a very powerful story. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, if I shared my feelings with my father, he would call me his little girl. He'd go, come here, little girl. So right away, I had the message that sharing feelings weren't safe. And <sighs> I had this this uh, situation with my son. I'd say it was about 30 years ago now. We had to put our dog to sleep. And I'll never forget it. We, we came back from the hospital, and my son was very sad uh, because he grew up with this dog. He was about 10 years old, and the dog was 10 years old. And he went to his room. And I remember following him to his room and I said to him, Hey Tom, what's going on? He said, I'm okay, dad. Well, I did more than that. I went over to him and I put his arms uh, around my, uh, my, my waist and I put his head on my shoulder and he started to cry. Within minutes, his tears were welling up. And I realized at that time I was giving my son a safe place, a place to cry in his father's arms. It's a place I never had as a kid. But that alerted me to the first piece, and that is create a safe place for our children. Let them share their feelings, whatever those feelings are. They're not wrong or right, they're feelings. And that gave me the, um, I want to say the ability or the knowledge to know where I had to go in my life and how I had to help other people. See, I believe childhood messages impact every part of our life to the intimacy we have or don't have, to our parenting skills, to the careers we choose. Those childhood messages release a tsunami of thoughts and voices that run through our whole life, our whole life. They get implanted. They're called core beliefs. Mm -hmm. Core beliefs are very deep. And in order to change them, it takes a lot of courage and work. And that's what I do with my clients. And your clients, you work with a lot of different people on both sides of this equation, right? You work with adults who have had challenging childhoods, and you also work with parents who want to parent their child healthily. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. That's right. So here's what I believe. I believe that, well, first of all, that when a child comes from a a childhood where they feel like they don't matter to their parents, It's not their parents they stop loving. They stop loving themselves. They feel like they don't matter. And a child like that, will, like me, will become fragmented. They'll split into two pieces. One piece they show the world, 
And the other piece, they dare not show how they feel inside because they feel damaged and they don't want anybody to see that. And as they grow older and they grow into intimacy, into me, and they get into mm, relationships yeah. and people start to get into the insides, they sabotage it. They push it away like I did. And in my book, The Problem Was Me, I constantly talk about this intrusive inner demon, this warden that sabotaged all my relationships. Whenever people got close, I pushed them away. Some of us get too needy and absolutely destroy the other person with neediness. And some of us just pull so far away that whenever anybody gets close, we get angry, we shut mm -hmm. down, or we push it away. But either way, we sabotage that relationship. So that fragmentation has to be healed. And how it's healed is I try to help my clients become congruent. What is congruent? One piece, not fragmented. You say what you mean, you mean what you say, and you're one piece. And that's what I try to do with my clients. Now, what do I talk about childhood messages being so important? Let me give you another story. My youngest son, watching a baseball game, he said, hey, dad, how come the kids in the stand root so hard for their favorite baseball player? I said, well, those baseball players are the heroes. He stopped and he thought a little bit. He said, you know, dad, those baseball players may be my hero someday, but you're always going to be my first hero. Oh, I love that. We as parents are our children's first heroes, whether we want that responsibility or not. This is why the messages we give them create a tsunami of thoughts and voices that permeate their lives throughout their lives. Absolutely. And that's such a... I mean, I guess that kind of leads to like one of my my next questions, which is what do you want people to take away from this today? I want them to take away that how powerful their messages are, not just their messages that they give their children, but also the messages they give their spouse and their spouse gives them. You know, these our children are little market researchers. They jot everything down. They're watching everything. And the way you relate to other people, they're going to they're going to ingrain that as well. Do you shut down? Do you run away? Do you get angry? Are you able to share your feelings? All of these things are the version of intimacy that they will learn when they grow up. Don't underestimate that. You may think you know how your children view things, but you could be wrong. They may view things completely different. You know, I talk all the time to parents about abandonment. And we think of abandonment, we think of physical abandonment. I'm not around. It's true. But I want to tell you, there's also nurturing abandonment. A lot of parents work all the time. And they're doing this to what? Better their, their children's lives. Save for college, better apartment, better house. But your children at a young age may not view it this way. They may say, why does it mom or dad want to spend more time with me? And you may not realize that in your zest to make a better life for them. Right. So I tell parents, be curious with your children. Talk to them. You know, a lot of single parents parenting, I get it, man. There's not a lot of time you have. But there's also quality time versus quantity time. To check in with your kids every night and say, hey, what was the best part of your day? 
What was the worst part of your day? Who were your friends? What computer sites did you go on? <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe once a week, take them for a slice of pizza, a cup of coffee. So I know we don't have a lot of quantity time, but try and use quality time. Because a child that feels they're important will grow up with more integrity and self-esteem and be able to face the world, and this world ain't easy, with resilience and coping mechanisms. Because they feel like they, they're worth it. Absolutely. And I think I kind of want to know a little bit about family dynamics. There are a lot of stereotypes out there, right? Like there's mm -hmm. a oldest child, middle child, youngest child, only child. And uh, it's funny, like just last night, actually, I was telling my boyfriend about oldest daughter syndrome, which I definitely suffer from. <laughs> so oh, uh, my God. I, <laughs> I'm with like, you, Rachel. I'm with you. <laughs> oldest daughter syndrome is like a... a, a I mean, oldest child in general, you know, is just yeah. such a intense, intense responsibility uh, yep. that is sometimes self-imposed. But what is the truth of these stereotypes? Well, look, it depends on the parenting on the top. View this as a pyramid. At the top of the pyramid, you have mom and dad, right? Or partners, whatever it is. And if they're nurturing each other in a healthy way, the child just has to be a child. That's all. But let's say there's a little bit of an issue at the top where for, like for my situation, my father was never around. So my mother needed to get her needs met from who? Me, the oldest. Exactly. Right. So I had to step up into that uh, caretaker role. I'm not supposed to do that, not as a child. But the messages I'm given from the top of the pyramid is if I want to be happy, I better take care of my mom mm -hmm. or I'm not going to be happy. So as we talk about these roles that develop in our childhood, sometimes the oldest and the youngest get more parentified because they're there to fill voids that they're not supposed to fill. In big families, some children play the invisible role. There's so yeah. much going on, they become invisible. Invisible. So there's a lot of different roles that get created in this childhood, but all the roles are those that we become comfortable with and we take into our adult lives. So all of a sudden in our adult life, we may be given the message, if I don't take care of my partner, then I can't be happy. Or if I don't say yes, people please a role. If I don't say yes to others, then I'm a bad person. I can't I can say relate no. to that. Yep. yep. <laughs> so what we do, Rachel, yeah, what we do, Rachel, is we get selfish and self-care confused. Self-care is taking care of myself. Selfish is not what self-care is. All of a sudden, I'm starting to feel selfish if I don't take care of others. It's an intrusive message. It's not true. So we live, we give our power to others in determining how we feel about ourselves. Not healthy. We have to challenge that message. And that's, I mean, we often don't recognize these patterns until that's we're much, right. much older. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right? So how, what does that look like? You know, uncover it. I mean, I, I imagine that when you work with adults who are trying to figure out this messaging that you kind of have to shed some light 
on that. And there's probably like a light bulb moment that they have where they go, oh, holy crap. Like that's exactly how I grew up. Right? Exactly. Yep. And it, t- it starts, I have three essentials with my clients. First, self-awareness. I have to know what's broken inside of me. If I'm working on my foot and my shoulder's the issue, I ain't getting anywhere. So self-awareness makes me understand what I have to work on. Next is actions. With self-awareness, I learn the actions I need to take. And the third essential is maintenance. I need to maintain those actions in order to change the role I was set up to play. Without self-awareness, I don't know what actions to take. And without actions, Mm. there's really nothing to maintain. It's like a a blueprint, yeah. Yeah, so self-awareness first. So I give my clients six questions. The six questions I'll go through them real quick is one, what are you feeling? Anxiety. Two, why? I had a fight with my mom, dad, boyfriend, husband, whatever. Three, what story are you making up? That we're not going to be okay, that they don't love me, that we'll never get through this, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Four, time traveling. Here's the key, Rachel. Time traveling. Am I looking at this as an adult or like a child? Am I afraid like Ooh. a child that I'm going to lose their love? Is it my child talking to me or my adult? Question five, what coping mechanisms has I learned to challenge these intrusive messages? What have I learned to do? Maybe I learned to go to a 12-step meeting. Maybe I learned to talk to my sister or brother about this. Maybe I learned to pray. Maybe I learned, I don't know. Question six, go to those you trust and ask them. What have they done when they feel this kind of pangst or anxiety? Grab their toolbox. Maybe you could use a few of what they give you. You don't have to use them all. Maybe you could use. So what the goal is, is to change the ritualistic thinking that we were set up to play in our childhood. Because we time travel all the time, Rachel, especially when we're feeling emotional feelings. We go back to being that little girl, that little boy, and doing the self-survival instincts that created safety in our childhood. I bet if people please and take care of this or caretake, or maybe I should just shut up like an invisible human being and disappear. So we go back to those childhood roles. So we got to challenge them if we want to heal our wounds and get better. And to do that, I mean, I know that in the last couple of years of my life, I've really done a lot of inner child work, like taking care of little Rachel. And I think like, it, 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 it's really tough because like the fact of the matter, you know how they say that like you should talk to yourself the way that you would talk to a friend because you would never talk to a friend the way that you talk to yourself. Never. That's right. That's that and inner I critic. Kind of, exactly. And I've kind of started thinking the same thing. Like when I start beating myself up, I start thinking about like little Rachel. And I actually mm-hmm. I actually have a, a picture of little Rachel on my mirror in my yep. bathroom so that I see yep. it every I see her every day. Um but I think like I would who would talk to little Rachel like this? Like that's yep. awful. Like why am I talking to myself like this? I would never yep. talk to her like that. And I would punch anybody who talked to little Rachel that way. I've said to myself the biggest bully in my life is the one I see in the mirror. 1000%. Yeah. Yep. Well, I guess like Maybe this is a, a a negative question, but is it even possible to escape childhood unscathed? Sure it is, but you know what, yeah? Rachel? Yeah. 
the, the, one of the dilemmas that I tell my clients is that to heal, we have to have uncomfortable conversations, mm-hmm. not comfortable conversations. We have to deal with our inner pain. Who wants to do that, right? We don't want to deal with this stuff. It's, it's not painful. <laughs> it hurts, right? But unfortunately, no pain, no gain, as they say. Mm-hmm. So we have to sometimes get healers in our lives that could show us the blind spots that we don't see within ourselves. And those healers could point out certain things. And I'm, look, I'm a fellowship guy. I'm a recovering addict. Uh, and uh, you know, I speak in 12-step forums. Uh, I'm not saying I agree with everything the 12-step says, <laughs> sure. but, the, but the point I'm making is that I try to bring the childhood wounds into the picture because if we don't look at that brokenness inside, we just go from symptom to symptom. I know a lot of recovering addicts that will go from alcoholism to gambling. We switch seats on the Titanic. Right, right. And if we're going to switch seats on the Titanic, it doesn't matter what seat you're in. So we have to fix what's underneath and the brokenness. Uh, And that's where I deviate a little bit from the 12 steps, uh, where I go a little deeper into the childhood wounds. But the point is, is that I believe everybody should have a fellowship. Those people I call witnesses that know your truth, that you can go to and you feel safe enough to put your stuff out there. And also you could catch their stuff. And I just believe that that's what helped me. And I I preach that in my groups and parenting groups and individual uh, consulting sessions. Yeah, I, I guess that kind of, I mean, all of this just blends really well into the next questions that I have. But mm-hmm. when you're working with people, what are some common dynamics that you see and how do you work with people? I mean, you're, you're talking about like addiction and then, mm-hmm. I mean, what, I, what I'm hearing you saying is everything goes back to childhood. And I mean- Yeah, I believe that. I, I, com- I completely agree. Um, but what are, what are some issues that people come to you with and how do you take them through that process to bring it back to childhood and then go from there? It's, that depends on the person, you know, there's some people out there that, um, absolutely understand that they had a bad childhood and they will be very open to the fact that they're wounded. And some people come to me and tell me they had a great childhood. And those are the tougher ones because I know nobody walks through my doors, nobody, unless there's childhood dysfunctions connected to it. But you can't tell people what they don't believe. So I got to go slow with that. And I got to process that. And I try to get them to trust me. And I try to get them to trust that what? I feel their pain. I have empathy for them. That's the key. When I have clients, that's why what I do a lot of the time is I talk about my personal experiences like I've done so far with my children. I've been told this in my master's degree in social work because I have an MSW and my CMAT degree. Don't share. Don't disclose your personal stories. I don't believe that, Rachel. I think when somebody hears that I've been there and done and felt what they have felt and done there, I think that they develop trust with me. Oh, 100%. Yeah, thank you. When I speak in conferences, a lot of the feedback I get back is, Tom, I feel like you're talking to me. And when Mm. I hear that, I know, let me do what I'm doing. 
because I want people to feel like I'm individually talking to them. That I think is what gets them to trust me, to believe in me. And if they believe and trust me, one of the most important things I can do is get them to take direction. There's two things in recovery and healing that need to take place. One is the willingness to get help. And that takes courage. It does. Next is the willingness to take direction. It's good to show up, but if I'm not going to listen to this guy, what could, am I going to really get better? Yes, if I'm not going right. to take direction and take actions, am I going to get better? So I try to get people to start to trust the process. And Rachel, here's the key. It's a process they can't control. And when people come into me, they want to control the process. But it doesn't Naturally. work. It, right, right. It's natural. But you know what? My best thinking is what got me through the door to see you, Tom. If my best thinking worked, <laughs> I wouldn't be here, would I? So yeah. that's so that's the key, is when I get them to really trust me at that point, I know then I can help them because I know then they're going to take direction. And direction is tough sometimes. It takes courage to do what we're uncomfortable doing. We go back to what I said earlier uncomfortable conversations, if done in the right way, is how the healing begins. I tell this to all my couples. Uncomfortable conversation is going to get you better, but you're going to want to do it because they're uncomfortable. It has to get harder before it gets better. That's something that I've definitely learned when it comes to healing. Yeah. There 100%. you go. And who, nobody wants to talk about their pain. Who wants to deal with their pain? Nobody. <laughs> but if you deal with your pain, that's how you get better, especially as we're talking in this uh, presentation about couples intimacy, mm -hmm. sharing the insides, being vulnerable. If I was vulnerable at it as a kid, it never worked. So I learned that intimacy was taboo. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to show my wife who I really am because they're gonna, she's going to reject me just like my parents did in childhood. So why would I do that? So now I got to challenge my core belief that vulnerability and intimacy isn't scary, painful, and I must avoid it. Rather, it's companionship, love, closeness. But that's not easy. When the messages you received early on is don't you dare. Don't right. you dare. This is the warden in my book. The problem was me. This intrusive inner voice, always telling me I don't deserve love, always telling me that I'm not good enough, constantly voicing this negativity in my head. And I got to silence that son of a gun. Mm. No, absolutely. And that's such a, all of that is just such a powerful, <laughs> our minds, our brains are so powerful. But if you have that negative messaging, it's so hard to un undo it because your brain is so powerful. Absolutely. The other, on the other side of that, though, because your brain is so powerful, it means that if you do have this negative messaging, you are more than capable of turning it around. Yep. I'll tell you a funny, funny thing that I, I think you'd appreciate it. I have a men's group I run. And when a guy comes into my group, I have eight guys. And if anybody's interested, I'm starting Zoom groups if they're interested in joining. 
So I'll have one of the guys in the men's group share because we check in in the beginning. I let everybody check in for two and a half minutes. And the guy will check in and say, I just had an intimate conversation with my wife. And I shared my feelings and I validated her feelings. And we talked about um, how we could help each other. And the other guys in a group want to stand up and applaud. They're like, whoa, what courage. <laughs> but you know the guy that says that, you know, he feels like a wimp. Like he's a, he, men shouldn't have these conversations. Mm. Men should suck it up. They should be tough. And he'll, he'll say, you know what? I felt like, I don't know. I just felt so weak talking about my feelings, talking about, you know, uh, I just, it, it was so uncomfortable. Okay. But the other seven guys thought it was amazing. My point to you, Rachel, is we feel like vulnerability is wrong. It's not healthy. It's uncomfortable. But yet when other people heard it, they thought it was amazing. This is why, as you were saying, and I'm saying, you got to challenge those voices, those intrusive voices, because they're not healthy. And how does that look practically? Like, what are the steps of challenging the vo those voices? Is it, you know, first just noticing it? Is it, you know, taking steps to talk back to it? It's self-awareness. It's doing those six questions and understanding, am I time traveling? Am I going back? Am I going to have this conversation as a scared little kid? Or am I going to have these conversation as a healthy adult? And a lot of these conversations come from Again, childhood messages. You know, unfortunately, Rachel, not many of us come from childhoods where our mom or dad came to us and said, hey, Rachel, what's going on with you? Mm -hmm. You look sad. You want to talk about that? I'd love to know what's going on with you. Can I help you? What could I do to help you today with your sadness, whatever? We, many of us didn't have, and I'm, not use, I'm just using your name. Sure, Many sure. of us didn't have conversations where our parents really came to us and really opened a door where we could say what we feel and feel what we say and have those conversations. Now, I want to say something very important right now, because some people get the wrong message here. Some people might say, oh, Tom, I don't want to be my child's best friend. I'm not saying that. Not at all. I'm saying that everybody here should give their child consequences based on the actions they choose. And I'll give an example of that in a minute. Very important, but it's important to be able to walk to your child and talk about what's going on with them. You know, my son in eighth grade, another story came to me and he said, dad, he said, my friends are smoking weed and I really want to try it, dad. You know, they're really saying it's great, whatever. So what did I want to say, Rachel? I wanted to say, go in your room until you're 27 years old and I'll come out and I'll, I'll <laughs> of go, course. of course, of course. But instead I said, well, what do you know about weed? I asked them questions. We went on a computer. We Googled it. What does weed do? What happens with weed? Okay, we spoke about it. And I also said to him, remember something. At the time, it was illegal. I don't know if it's legal or not in Jersey anymore, but it was illegal. And I said to him, remember something. If you choose to break the law, you choose to get in trouble. You have to bear those consequences. So I'm not telling any parent out there not to teach their children healthy consequences. But healthy consequences based on the choices they make, 
Not that they were a bad kid that deserves to be punished like yes. I, was. I was. My father beat the hell out of me. Not that, but rather, what, what did you learn? What's the opportunity? And if you choose to break the law, you choose to get in trouble. Exactly. And ironically, at the end of the story, a few weeks later, I said, hey, how you doing, kid? What's going on? And he said, dad, I decided not to hang out with those kids anymore. Now, here's the moral of the story, Rachel. We can't control our children's behavior because they're going to get to the point someday where they're going to do what they want to do, not what we tell them to do. We want to still in our children healthy values so they control their own behavior. Mm -hmm. So they do the right thing, not because we're twisting their arm and telling them to exactly. do the right thing because they want to. And that's one of the keys to parenting. I completely agree. You know, I'm I'm not a parent. Um, I'm not sure if I will be or won't be one day. But uh, I have always thought the exact same thing that if you're going to say to you, if your kid comes to you and is open to you about the fact that they're considering trying something like that. And by the way, I think it is legal in Jersey now. I'm in Philly, oh, okay. and a lot of a lot of people in Philly okay. go go <laughs> over to Jersey to buy their weed. Okay, um, but uh, yeah, it it is such a your your kid is going to be way more like if you tell your kid under no circumstances should you smoke weed it's just going to make them a little more curious about it yeah and yeah you know? and yeah and one of the things one of the roles as we were talking earlier people pleasing caretaking visible is the controlling role mm, mm -hmm. parents come to me all the time and this and and control comes from fear Rachel the more fearful i am on the inside the more i try to control my children or others, boyfriend, husband, wife on the outside. Right. If I'm secure on the inside, I don't have to control everything. When I'm insecure, the more insecure I am, the more I want to control. And I have so many parents come to me and say, I don't understand this. I did everything for my kid, everything. Every time I was always there for my, and I tell them, well, that's the problem. You were mm. always there. You didn't teach your children how to get out of their own messes. When our children are impending danger, yeah, we got to be there for them. I'm all for that, keeping them safe. But allow your children to get out of their own messes. First, ask them, I hear you struggling with this. What do you think you should do? Help them develop coping mechanisms on their own. Yeah. So definitely. when they do get out in that world without mom and dad, they have some tools in their tool bag. It's a similar, you know, my mom used to tell me this story um, <laughs> about her mom, my grandmother. And it was a similar thing as to what you're talking about with your with uh, your son. My mom, there was like some guy in the neighborhood who wanted to make out with my mom. And she went to her mom. And oh, no, what she said when the guy said, you know, I want to make out with you. My mom said, well, I have to go ask my mom. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And so my mom went to her mother and said, so-and-so, you know, wants to make out with me. And my grandmother apparently did the exact same thing, was like, well, what do you think that making out is? How do you feel about it? Do you Excellent. want to? Is that Excellent. something? Exactly. That's uh, uh, my, my grandmother apparently. And, you know, my mom, who was a guest on the podcast maybe about six months ago, told that story on the, on the show, I believe. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's, it's just such a – and it's such a good – it encourages curiosity. It encourages like yeah. having your kid think critically. It encourages having your kid look inward and think, well, how do I feel about this? It just 100%. having your kid be curious. It's just such a, it's a much better um, recipe ultimately. Absolutely. I know a lot of clients that come to me 
that developed drinking habits or drug habits or gambling habits basically because they needed those muscles because they didn't know how to deal with life on life's terms Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. parents kept rushing in and they needed something to make them bigger, stronger, and better in their world of addiction. So it is very important. And it's important also, as your mom did with with her mom, is to create that place where your child could always come to you because we want our children to come to us. We don't want them to seek validation from the wrong places. And there's a lot of wrong places out there. Definitely. And I guess, so, you know, we've kind of merged. We talked about being a child and, you know, coming to you for help to unlearn those messages. Mm -hmm. But we've kind of merged in talking, which is the second part of this, which are what are some tools that you can offer parents to make sure that they are encouraging positive messages? Well, you know what? We're their models, Rachel. So we got to show up healthy in order to give them healthy messages. I can't be smoking away and tell my kid, you know, you shouldn't smoke. Now, I could do that. It'll help. But I got to model good behavior for my children. So what I talk about, again, again, in my book, The Problem Was Me, and Rachel, The Problem Was Me, my wife loved that title. She said, you got that right, kid. (laughs) So- we I was going to mo- ask about the title. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She said, you finally got that right. I said, thank you for sharing. <laughs> thank you for sharing. So, uh, but we have to model healthy behavior. We have to model that we're working on ourselves, our shortcomings. We got to be able to apologize when we're wrong. We got to be able to get help when we need it. Hmm. We have to model these things for our children. So we are congruent. We can't be fragmented either where we say one thing and show them another thing. We have to be congruent. Say what we mean and mean what we say. So I could tell you that one of the things parents can do is to model healthy behavior for your children. I can't tell my kid, don't be on your cell phone all day when I'm on my cell phone all day. It doesn't come off good. And believe me, believe me, I tell you. My, my, I got to talk to my wife about this all the time because I don't know what it is, Rachel. It seems when I text her, she never responds, but yet everybody, she's always on a phone. I can't understand <laughs> this. I, I, I'm trying to figure this whole thing out. But anyway, I that's, think that's something that happens when you get yeah, married that, that's, personally. That's, <laughs> that's, that's for another presentation. Okay. Um, but, but the point is, is that we can't be doing what we want them not to do. We just can't do that. So we have to model healthy behavior for our children. It's very important. Absolutely. And I mean, it's tough too, because like you, when you're a parent, you're still a human being. You're still, you're still going to mess up. You're still going to, you know, have to take care of yourself. And that's a really vital part of this too. You right, like modeling behavior. You can't, take care of your kids if you can't take care of yourself. You as a parent have to find time to take care of yourself. You can't pour from an empty cup. Exactly. You can't give them what you don't have. Exactly. exactly. And so yep. to be able to to be able to um model that healthy behavior, like what do parents need to do to to accept, you know, that they're going to mess up, that they're human and also to to take care of themselves. To show your humanness. What's wrong with telling your children 
listen, I've made mistakes too. What's wrong with sharing a little bit of your vulnerability with your children? Mm. Nothing. Now, again, I am not saying be your child's best friend. I got to keep saying that. Like if your child doesn't clean their room, you say, look, you chose not to clean your room. You chose not to get your allowance. If your child doesn't put away their toys, you chose not to put away your toys. You chose not to play with your toys the next day. If you say to your child, uh, be home by 11 and they come home at 12, you chose not to go out the next day. You've got to be the person that sets the rules. That's not right. what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is showing your vulnerability. Hey, you know what? If 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 I am so afraid of terrorism and what's going on in the world, and I tell my kid, don't, don't be afraid, it's okay. How's that going to come off? Mm-hmm. I got to share my feelings. I am afraid too of what's going on. And Here's what I do. Here's what I try to do. Here's my coping mechanisms. And talk to your child and allow your feelings to come out and teach them, again, healthy coping mechanisms, resilience, how to get through it. You know, to say to your kid, let's ignore the fact that maybe these school shootings, I'm not getting into politics, but it happens, right? It happens, unfortunately. Yes. Right. So don't, don't, if you're afraid of that, don't deny it. Don't deny Mm -hmm. it. Tell your child, listen, if God forbid something happens, what room would you run into? Who, right. Where would you go? What would you do? Teach them coping mechanisms. But don't deny that you're not afraid. If your child is watching uh, things on TV and reading things in the newspaper, that's very triggering. You come off as a liar if you tell them that that's not scary. Yeah. And you don't, you're not preparing You're not preparing them for the that's world. That's right. Tell them it's, it scares you too, though. Say, yeah, I understand you're scared. I I get it. I'm scared too. Relate to them and then go into, after validation, coping mechanisms. It's such a delicate balance. Yeah. You're very right. It's very delicate balance. But at the same time, your child needs to see your humanness too. You can't be fragmented. You got to be congruent. And to teach them also how you've gotten through some of your struggles will teach them how to get through some of their struggles. Yeah, I think that's that's the whole thing about parenthood that just consistently has me like terrified of the prospect of it. Listen, it's crazy, (laughs) Rachel. It ain't easy. Look, I'm going to give you another story. Uh, I because this story really brought it to home for me, and that was what my son and he was pitching in Little League. He was one of the best pitchers on his team. He started the game and he pitched terrible. He couldn't get the ball over the plate. His team lost. It was a uh, traveling team. It was the playoffs. And I remember walking to the dugout and I remember saying to myself, wow, I want to really be a good dad. What can I say? I said to myself, should I put on my therapist hat? Maybe I should ask him how he's feeling, you know, do that process. And I said, well, maybe I should put on my coaching hat. Maybe I should say, hey, let's practice your pitching, your rotation, your follow through. Maybe help him there. And I remember walking in the dugout in front of all of his friends. He was about 12 years old, maybe 13. In front of all of his friends, I walked over to him. And he said to me, Dad, I need a hug. Mm. That's all he needed, Rachel. He -hmm. didn't need a pitching coach. He didn't need a therapist. He needed a hug from his first hero. That's all he needed. And I remember when I was hugging him and I was looking around and all the kids in the dugout were looking at this spectacle like 
what's going on here? Like, my dad would come in and say, hey, you know, what's the matter with you? Couldn't you get it over the plate? Your, your follow-through wasn't good. They were all looking in this curiosity of, wow, he pitched bad and he's getting a hug? I don't get this. Makes me sad that's not the norm. Yeah, well, you know what? Because a lot of times, especially in sports, I will tell you, because I coach my kids' teams, fathers put mm-hmm. their life into their children's sports. They become, they identify too much of themselves. It's almost right. like if the kid feels they fail, uh, kid fails, they fail. But the point is with this situation is I tell parents, when you see your child struggle, whether their heart was broken on a, on by some boy or girl, whether they failed a test they studied for, whether they made an error in a big baseball game or missed a basket in a big basketball game, don't jump in. Pause. Stop and think about what would I want to hear from my mom or dad at that point. And you know what, Rachel? When I was down, boy, I would have loved a hug from my dad. Mm-hmm. I didn't need more than that. So I tell parents, stop and pause and think about what you would have wanted from your mom or dad. Let the compassion guide what you say in the way you say it. 100%. And I think I just, I feel the need to to tell you, like, I am so impressed. It is so, you know, you've, you've spoken, you've touched a little bit on your past and hearing, you know, how you interact with your son, it, the work that you've done is so not easy. Like it is so not easy, but I'm just, you're, it's so hard to break patterns, you know, generational patterns. Very hard. And I, I'm, Very I'm hard. just, I want to let you know that, like, I, I see what you've done, and I'm, I'm really impressed with it, and I hope that other people are able to do it too. Thank you, Rachel. And you know what? I could tell everybody out there. Sometimes you got to fake it till you make it, because a lot of these times I, I felt so uncomfortable, and, and I just faked it. I, I really did. I, I, I like with my son with his dog, and my son, and I, I didn't know. I kind of just let it happen because my best thinking wouldn't have let it happen. So uh, sometimes, you know, in life, you just got to let things happen. You know, with our children, we love our kids so much that we put our fears in their diaper. You know, one of my books is don't put your crap in your kid's diaper. Some, (laughs) Some people like it. Some people don't. I get it. But the point is, is that when our children are born, we put expectations in their diaper we put fears in their diaper we put because we love them i mean it's right, not a, right. it's not for the wrong reason we love them but sometimes if we're not working on our stuff we're putting the wrong stuff in their diaper and when i talk i just did two presentations on parenting and i tell parents you know we want to hold on to the strong messages we received not all of them are bad but we have to take a peek and at least Look at the areas that may need a little improvement or may need a little attention, if you will. And, and, and it's not easy because if we, if we look at that, we're almost looking at it through shaming ourselves. And it's not about shame. Like with parents, our parents did the best they could. I'm never about hating your parents or disliking right, your parents. Yeah. They loved you. They did the best they could. But that doesn't mean you can't improve on them. Absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, there are some people who just were, you know, born with just bad luck of the draw when it came to parents, of course. Um, but to be able to turn that around is just pretty—it's just impressive. Um, 
Thank well, is there, is there anything else that you want to share that you think listeners should know? Any last stories, you know, that we didn't get to, uh, you know, we're kind of run up on time here. Just anything else yeah, you want to share? I'm going to, I'm going to share a quick story and then, and leave you with uh, the rest. And uh, all right. Okay. So as I said, I came from a bad childhood. I was always in trouble. Uh, the school, my parents were called after the school all the time. I was always in a fight with somebody beating somebody up. I, I was a bully. I don't even want to get into it. But here's the funny thing. So I, I go to a PTA meeting for my son years ago, and I'm sitting there with my wife, and the PTA meeting was over, and we're walking out of the class, and the teacher says to me, Mr. Gagliano, he said, I want to talk to you for a minute. Now, Rachel, the first thing I said is, uh-oh, uh-oh, <laughs> what did my son do? Because I just remembered my childhood. So she stops and she goes to me and she says to me, what's your secret? Uh, okay. I said, what do you mean? She says, I never heard. I always get choked up at this. this I, you'd think after a while I wouldn't do this, but she it's says- It's your kid. <laughs> your, your, your son talks about you with such love and respect. Please tell me what your secret is. And Rachel, I didn't know what to tell her. I, I really didn't. I, I was like flabbergasted at what she said. And all I said is just help your child- feel like they're, they matter and they're important. And always keep that in your mind when you're talking to them. And I don't know what else to tell them. So I want to leave everybody with this is in this presentation, take out what you can, leave the rest. You don't have to agree with everything I said. If you could take out a little, a few nuggets that could help you in your parenting or in your relationship, please do. Um, and if you do want to hear some more of what I talk about, my podcast could be found putting in the search bar, the problem was me. Uh, iTunes, Spotify, anywhere you listen to podcasts, that's the problem was me. And you can find my website, theproblemwasme.com. And I could tell you, the last thing I'm going to say is sometimes improving your life means dealing with uncomfortability. And you may not feel like doing it, but I know for me, I had to do things I did not feel like doing it. If I waited till I felt like doing it, I would have never did it. Mm. Sometimes we got to do things we don't feel like doing. So I'll, I'll leave your audience with that. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Tom, uh, for your stories and these little nuggets of wisdom. Um, it's really been incredible, and I hope that everybody can take something away from it. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, this has been a very special episode of talking about childhood and undoing childhood stuff is, is always an important episode here on Wine, Dine, and 69. I am your host, Rachel Dalton, and let's keep talking.